book that we have decided to center our lives around, but it's true. There's a lot of people I personally wrestled. I was raised in the church and Christian school, and I wrestled with whether or not the Bible was true. I had lots of trust issues. And so when it told me that I needed to believe these things that seemed unbelievable, I had difficulty putting my trust in them. And so when I was able to see that the historical things of scripture are validated outside of the Bible, it made this this book come to life and it made it reliable. Welcome to the Bible Professor podcast show. Here is your host, the Reverend Dr. Mal Winstead. All right, so we're joined today by Kristen Davis of DoubtlessFaith.com, and welcome to the Bible Professor Podcast. Thank you for joining us, Kristen. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, cool. First of all, if you would just introduce yourself, you know, your academic credentials, your passion for archaeology, and and whatever you'd like to share, please. Yeah, so my name is Kristen Davis. I am a PhD candidate at SES who hopefully will be graduating in May. Um, I have a master's of arts in Christian apologetics from Biola, and I did my master's thesis there on Tel Dan and the archaeology around that. And I really have a passion for archaeology and apologetics in general, Um, even though my dissertation is actually on artificial intelligence. My uh, my first love when it came to apologetics was archaeology, because it's the thing that actually saved my faith. It was the thing that helped me believe that the Bible was trustworthy enough to believe the theological things that I couldn't verify. And so I'm excited to be able to share what I know here with you guys today. All right. Thank you very much. Um, so I want you to talk about Tel Dan, uh, the finds uh, at Tel Dan. And then I want to go down to Jericho and talk about Jericho and the issues that have gone on there in the last 30, 40 years in archaeology. And then down in Jerusalem, where you actually did a dig uh, or participated in an archaeological dig. But uh, so tell Dan, uh, first of all, let me read a scripture passage and that'll sort of set you up, Kristen. Okay. Okay. Judges 18. So the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were living in it, living in security in the way of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. And then in Judges 18, verse 14, again, there's the mention of this city of Laish. How does that connect to Dan of the Old Testament and the archaeological uh, site in Israel today? Yeah, so that there's not a whole lot of references to Dan in the scriptures, and Laish is actually the former name of Dan. It is the Canaanite name, and uh, the Israelites, when they when the tribe of Dan ended up coming in and populating this area, eventually the name switched over and became Dan as a result of the new people that were living there. But the thing that I find most interesting about this site actually has to do with the period of the conquest. Even though this is not one of the big conquest sites, like we'll talk about Jericho in a few minutes, this is actually one that uh, shows a pattern that we see actually through a lot of different sites throughout the um, Canaanite area in relation to the conquest with the Israelites. We see that there were a people group that were wealthy. They had a high society. They were building lots of things. They were importing from across the Mediterranean Sea. They had gold and alabaster, and they um, were living in this uh, agricultural gold mine area because the Dan River is one of the tributaries to the Jordan. Um, And they're living here and they're living in earthen ramparts, which is a defensive structure from 
the generations before them. And when the, the Israelites would have come in, these people are fitting the, the description that we see in scripture of a well-fortified society living in security without concern for updating their military structures that are wealthy and well-established. We also find religious artifacts here. But then all of a sudden we see a destruction layer and a new people group move in. And this people group is semi-nomadic. They're living in tents. They don't build their house, new houses for themselves. They have subterranean pits that they're big, digging under their homes to store large amounts of possessions, not just a few secret, secreted away items, but large um, pottery for storing grain and water and stuff like that. And so we find that there's a brand new people group that ends up actually coming in. And this people group is not religious. We don't see any religious artifacts from them. And so all of the signs of this new people group look like the Israelites. It supports that the people who came in and conquered this area were in fact the Israelites, because what we know about Israel is they had spent 40 years in the desert than decades conquering the land of Canaan. So they were semi-nomads and their religious worship was not supposed to take place at all of the cities around Israel. Instead, it was supposed to take place at the tabernacle tabernacle at Shiloh. And then eventually when that uh, became the temple in Jerusalem. But the thing that I actually love the most is we solidify that this new people group was in fact Israel by what we see a couple generations later during the period of the prophets. And what we see there is this people who have moved in has now become settled. They're building their own uh, homes. They're building their own buildings. They actually end up building a, a religious site on a place that had historically been a religious site at the site of Dan. And during the time when Solomon's son actually has the revolt between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, where he takes or where um, 10 of the tribes separate away from Judah and a golden calf is set up at Dan and at another location, we see that the religious temple implements that are put up at this particular site are distinctly Jewish. The uh, altars that we see at this place have the same Jew style that we see uh, indicated in the Jewish indication, or sorry, in the, the temple and the tabernacle um, descriptions that are defined early and by how God wanted those things to look. Mm -hmm. We see the uh, incense shovels that are actually being used at this are actually seen nowhere else except for in a Jewish synagogue 1100 years later. Mm. And all of the implements we see here are distinctly Jewish, which actually kind of makes an interesting um, correlation that we see over a long period of time a correlation between the historical record and the biblical account that this people, this place was a living um, group of Canaanites that were conquered by a new group of people. And then that new group of people looks very Israelite, both in the immediate conquest period and in the periods that follow. Okay. That's uh, excellent. Uh, demonstrating that correlation for us. And um, also, so this is good. And thank you. Uh, this is Kristen Davis of doubtlessfaith.com. Uh, as a text-based one who loves to study the the scripture, or if you, uh, to look at the background, the history of scripture, you need to do what uh, Kristen has mentioned here and understand that you may only see the word Dan as far as the place name a couple of few times in scripture, but that's not going to get you a comprehensive study of this place. You've got to look up uh, uh, Laish and. And that's what goes on in the Old Testament so many times. Yeah. You mentioned the Canaanites. The Israelites defeated those nations. So they're going to place new names on those cities, just like happens today, right? Or in yes. recent times. 
Yes. Like for example, the city I live in, I live, I live right outside Jacksonville, Florida, but this is not the original name of this area. This actually was called Calford um, at wow. one point in time in the past. And so names change based off the people groups that are living in them at that period of time. And that's actually one of the things that are, allows us to see even in the scriptures, this site popping up throughout the entire old Testament, because while we only see While we do see it at the conquest, we also see it in relation to Abraham. Abraham, when Mm -hmm. he's going to rescue Lot, comes all the way up to Laash. He probably stopped (laughs) in Laash and went through this um, arched gate complex that has actually been preserved at that site. Um, And he went in there and would have stopped in this place for rest and refueling um, for he and his men during that period of time as well. Yeah. And uh, back to this Bible study thing real quick, though, this is something students of the Bible must understand if they're going to do some really deep study of the Bible. Uh, again, you can't just look for Dan, for instance, you've got to look for right. Laash and, and uh, other place names going on uh, like Jerusalem. You know, w- when you understand that was originally Jebus yes. or before Jerusalem, well, then you've got to do some more word studies o- over in the new Testament. Same sort of thing happens. It's there. It's an issue of term versus concept. Right. Uh, you can't just look up one word to study out a concept. You've got to look up a lot of other words. But anyway, right. Chris and Davis uh, talking about tell Dan, you mentioned those double gates. Uh, can you expound a little more on the gates that have been found there? And what was the purpose of double gates? Yeah. So there was this really cool um gate complex that was found at the site of Dan. That's actually an original arched gate. It's probably one, it's one that definitely predates the Roman arches and it's a mud brick gate. This is one that was actually would have been destroyed as, um, except for that it was used in a secondary defensive structure, um, at a later period of time. So it actually became the core of the earthen ramparts of later generations. And the interesting thing about this is that it shows architectural feats from that period of time that actually weren't thought to exist at that period of time. And so there's a lot of historical narratives about when certain kinds of things could show up in history, when the people were advanced enough to be able to write or build you know, certain types of geometric uh, structures. And this is one that shows that the um, people of Israel were, and the people of the Canaanite area uh, actually had intellectual skills to be able to do things earlier than was thought um, because they were able to build these kinds of arches prior to the Romans who were thought to be the first. 90s, when I was in Israel and visited the ruins of uh, Tel Dan, you could actually go in one of those gates um, I mean, it didn't go anywhere, just a hole in the ground, basically, but that arched mud brick gate. But I since have read or understand that they've closed those in. So anyway, I have a picture of a friend of mine standing in that gate. They have to fill it in to preserve the mud brick so that it doesn't erode and eventually fall apart. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you, Kristen Davis of DoubtlessFaith.com. Let's go down and talk about Jericho and this is the first Canaanite city that Joshua and the Israelites uh, conquered. And so it's mentioned uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, several times. Uh, we know I've done research on Jericho as well. You know, the research last century of uh, Watsinger and then uh, John Garstang and then Kathleen Kenyon and her troubles with dating it, whatever, 150 years before the time of Joshua. But then 
you've been involved or know of some uh, current uh, researchers, uh, ABR, and um, what they found with the pottery. What can you tell us? Yes. So this is a fun site because there is ha there has been a lot of controversy around this site, whether or not there's two main controversies. One, whether or not there was a populated city for uh, Joshua to come in and conquer during the 1400s. And the second is, well, if there was a populated city, it wasn't the Israelites who conquered it. And we have support for or rebuttals or answers for both of those. The first one being that um, what we find at the site actually corresponds with what the biblical text says. The biblical text tells us that it was a short siege. It was a seven-day siege. And so the Israelites were supposed to go in, burn everything, and they weren't supposed to take anything for themselves. And what we find at this site um, is exactly that. But before we dive into the Israelite verse, whether it was some other group of people, was there a populated city during this period? There was controversy between all of the people that you just mentioned because of pottery that some of them thought was, was missing. There's this pottery, um, different destruction layers are actually dated based off the kind of pottery that's found in them. And if you've ever gone and visited the White House, there's a China room that has all of the different China patterns that each of the first ladies have picked. And you can, as you look at them, they kind of fit the decades in which they were they were uh, selected. The same kind of idea is what we have here. There's certain pottery that was used with certain styles and certain construction types during different periods of time. So when they find a destruction layer, they date it based off the kind of both local and imported pottery that they find at a site. Kathleen Kenyon did not find imported Cypriotic and Mycenaean pottery. So that would have been pottery that would have come had to be uh, exported across or imported across the Mediterranean mm -hmm. Sea and then taken by cart to this area. And she didn't find this in the area that she researched. And so she concluded there wasn't a site, but her records didn't come out until a couple of years after her death, when Bryant Wood of Associates for Biblical Research, who's an expert in Palestinian pottery, was able to review her findings. And actually in her notes, she had misclassified some of this pottery that she was actually saying was absent. And so based off both the local pot pottery and the imported pottery, he was able to date that there was in fact a populated city during the 1400s. But he had a secondary thing that was able to support it as well. And that was that they found Egyptian scarabs that were being used and put into burial tombs from a, like a 300 year period. And so they found ones Kristen, from Hatshepsut. Sorry. Kristen, tell uh, my listeners what scarabs are. Yes. So the, sorry, they are little amulets that would have represented somebody important to a person. And so the kinds of amulets that are found at this particular site in the burial caves were Egyptian and they represented the Egyptian um, rulers during this period of time. And so we have some from Hatshepsut, which her dates are starting in the 1503. And then we have some from Tutmos III, Amenhotep III, and then we also have some seals from uh, Tutmos III as well. And so those dates go all the way down to the 1340s. And if you think about Old Testament, the dates are backwards. So the older, the higher dates are older. And so the 1500s through the 1300s gets us the entire range because the conquest would have taken place around 1400 BC. And you don't bury people in other people's graveyards. You don't go to another city to bury your dead. And so this supports the idea that there was, in fact, people living here during that entire 200-year period of time if they're continuing to bury people in this location. So we do think that there was, in fact, we have good reasons, both two, two different good reasons to believe that there were, in fact, people living here during the, the time Joshua would have come through. 
But then also what we actually find in the destruction layer supports the idea that it was the Israelites rather than the Egyptians. And the reason that we believe that is the case is because the Egyptian had a very, uh, they were very patient. They had a, a well-known style. They were very interested or they were, they were very patient and they were willing to come and seize your city. We have records of them doing it for up to three years. And they would come to a city right before the harvest where all the food was still in the fields. So the soldiers could stay well fed while the people mm-hmm. inside the city would have been practically out of food because it would have been harvest season right. and they would have starved to death. And so they would have given up in a, in a short amount of time. And then anything that was left after the siege would have obviously been taken back as spoils of war. But what we find at this site is that it was a very short siege because all of the food is actually in the city and it was burnt in the jars. And so the siege took place after the harvest came in. It was short. The people didn't eat at all. And it was left behind, which is not something that you would normally do. And the city was completely burned. And so we also see a collapsed wall like that of what is expected from the seven day siege with with Joshua. And so it looks as though there was a populated city and that the Israelites were the ones who conquered it. Okay, and this corresponds or uh, corresponds to what is described in the book of Joshua. And also after that, I and Hatsor, I've been to the ruins of Hatsor as well. And as you know, um, uh, evidence of burning there as well in the foundations that were dug up. Yes. So cool. Okay, again, uh, final uh, major city. I want you to just comment on Kristen. Uh, we're joined by Kristen Davis of Doubtless Faith is down in the capital city of Jerusalem. You've been on a dig there. Uh, can you tell us about that, what your finds were and what what that did for you? Yeah, I don't have as much uh, research on this particular one because I haven't actually studied it as well, but I did get to be a part of this dig and it's so it's of special interest to me. Um, so if you are standing at the Western Wall with your back to the Western Wall, looking across the that, plaza. That's the, that's the Wailing Wall for most people. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, go you. ahead. If you're standing with your back to the Wailing Wall, looking towards the, across the plaza to the Jewish quarter, there is um, the last wall of buildings. They were doing a salvage excavation. So there was a police station from the, the 1960s that they were deciding to rebuild. And everywhere you dig or ha- want to do construction in Israel, you have to do a salvage excavation first because there's just so much to find. And so they did this and they ended up finding... Uh, 15 different layers of um, wow. of ruins for over 2,700 years of human activity. And it's really cool because a lot of it dates back um, to the period of um, the, uh, the divided monarchy, the, the uh, period of the prophets, and then all the way up through the Romans. The oldest layer that they found at this particular site was a late Iron Age quarry. And this would have been from the 8th and the 7th century, so a couple hundred years mm-hmm. after David. And they would have used this quarry and the output of it for construction in Jerusalem. On top of that, they actually found some second temple periods of Solomon's temple period buildings from around the 7th century. So these are, he wouldn't have been building them, but it would have been in support or surrounding the the temple that he built. Mm -hmm. And what we see is that those existed there for a while until they were destroyed around the period of time when when Nebuchadnezzar came in and sieged the city. So around the mid 500s BC. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the area lays 
um, unoccupied for several centuries, which is exactly what we would expect given the Babylonian exile. But then around the time of Christ, so during the Second Temple period, but around 100 BC to 100 AD, we see additional residential buildings coming up. Now, those buildings weren't actually found themselves, but they were known to be there because of what was found underneath them or where underneath where they would have been. They found a second temple period ritual bath, which is called a mikvah, which would have been used for ceremonial washing. And then also a cistern in the same area. And these, if they go, if you were to go further up the hill in Jerusalem, we see that there are large wealthy homes that this is the style. You see the home and then they have these mikvahs or cisterns underneath because you would have had to have the wealth to be able to put these in your mm -hmm. own homes. Um, we find frescoes, Hasmonean and Herodian coins, and other Jewish pottery from this period of time, which is a, a really interesting um, it, things to be able to see. And then all of these were preserved by the Roman Cardo, which was put down after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So it's really cool because we can see the historical biblical timeline and the value and importance of this particular area, but based off the kind of people and the wealth that's put into this area and the fact that it's continued to be constructed upon right next to the temple, we see that once again, that historical timeline running through this particular site that supports um, and corresponds with the biblical timeline. Okay. Really cool. So uh, in participating in the dig, uh, Kristen, did you actually have, shovel rakes brush in your hand <laughs> yes yes we did we uh were unskilled labor so we didn't get to do a whole lot of the fun stuff but we definitely okay. dug we saw another we discovered another piece of the roman cardo which had actually graffiti on it from the the roman period of time not spray paint graffiti but chiseled graffiti yeah, yeah, yeah. nice and and then we got to put together uh we found enough pieces of this green or green bowl green glazed bowl that we were actually able to put most of it together and had been um, destroyed for at least 1500 years. So it was a really cool experience yeah. to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Oh man. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, you mentioned the Roman Cardo, the, the, the streets through there, you can go in the old city today and go down underneath the ground and walk on the first century era Roman flagstones or whatever they call them. Those, pieces of their roads are still there 2000 years later and we can't even build roads here the last two years. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, so, and there are lots of other finds as we, uh, we know in Jerusalem, you know, Robinson's arch in the Southern, uh, the Southern end of the temple Mount platform and uh, all those things, lots of things, Western wall tunnel, the Holder gates on the Southern end, so many archeological yeah. finds. And we're just not going to talk all uh, about all of those uh, this time, but uh, you mentioned, and this will segue into what I want you to give us the, so what was this biblical archeology span do for us as Christians? You mentioned Kristen, the, um, uh, the 15 layers down uh, 15 layers of civilization. And you know, up at Megiddo, I think there's 26 layers civilization on top of civilization and and uh so just so much of this stuff lines up with the scriptural text the correlation is there not to be missed and uh so what does that do for us apologetically what what has that done for you personally yeah i think that some people can study history just because they're history nerds, but I think that there is a lot of value in studying the biblical archaeology and the actual history, 
both in the, in the Bible and what has been found outside of scripture, extra biblical texts relating to this, because what it shows us is that this book that we have decided to center our lives around, that it's true. There's a lot of people I personally wrestled. I was raised in the church and Christian school, and I wrestled with whether or not the Bible was true. I had lots of trust issues. And so when it told me that I needed to believe these things that seemed unbelievable, I had difficulty putting my trust in them. And so when I was able to see that the historical things of scripture are validated outside of the Bible, it made this, this book come to life and it made it reliable. And so it made the theological things, the difficult things to believe, um, a little bit easier to believe. So for example, uh, that Jesus or Jesus's death, burial and resurrection are historically verifiable books of information that he was crucified by the Romans during a particular period of time, during a particular place that he was thought to have been seen and risen again three days later. And all of these things, these historical bits of information are historically verifiable and others have put a lot of effort into showing that that, that is the best explanation of the facts. But that his death counted for you and me, that his death had the ability to be a substitute for us and allow us to be reconciled to God, that's a theological truth that's built upon the historical truths. So if the historical truths are true, these other things that seem almost impossible to believe, too good to be true, can be grounded in something that you can verify. And I think that that's the real value behind archaeology is it gives you a solid foundation upon which you can believe the things that might seem incredible about the scriptures. Yeah, wonderful. That's a great ex, uh, uh, apologetic point, actually. And, and, and I think I read recently only a little better than 5% of what's under the ground in the land of Israel has even been excavated. Yeah. So there's only more to come, you know, last yes. 50 years have demonstrated, you know, the, the historical reliability of old and new Testament, like you've said, yes. and, and that just helps Christians, you know, to strengthen their faith. It can help lost people come to faith, I suppose, but, um, it's a great explanation, Kristen, that you gave us. So we've been joined by Kristen Davis of Doubtless Faith. Uh, Kristen, tell us about your website and your ministry. Yeah, so you can visit me on at doubtlessfaith.com. The goal behind this ministry is to help people doubt the scriptures less so that they can have doubtless faith in God. That is our, our motivation. And so um, I do speaking and teaching around uh, internationally. I, I've helped a lot with Ratio Christie in South Africa. I love to come and volunteer my time to help people have more confidence in the scriptures because it really has completely changed my life. And so if your Amen. church would, or your ladies group or, or your Bible study would like somebody to come and talk about some of these things, I'd be more than happy to come and do so. Okay. Cool. Thank you, Kristen. And her website will be in the link below. And uh, Kristen Davis of Doubtless Faith, thank you for joining the Bible Professor today. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me.